we are moving towards Jesus' last words. Indeed, John chapter 17 are the last, is the last extended bit of speech that Jesus addresses, um, uh, at least indirectly, to his, his disciples. And so, um, we can expect that it will be very important. Last words are very important. Since it's a Jubilee Sunday, um, uh, let me, for instance, mention the Queen's grandfather's last words. Actually, they probably weren't his last words. Um, but George V was lying on his deathbed and um, uh, it is said that some slightly obsequious uh, courtier was saying, you'll be better soon, sir, there will be no problem and you'll be able to go to Bogner again. And um, uh, George V's last words were, be Bogner. <laughs> uh, probably not true. Oscar Wilde was uh, lying on his deathbed in uh, Paris and um, uh, in a very grotty, scruffy room in the rough end of of Paris and it said that he looked at the wallpaper which was peeling and horrible and he said, one of us will have to go. (laughs) Or uh, actually my favourite one that I know of is the World War I captain, I think he was, who was, uh, who was in the trenches, um, some considerable distance away from the, uh, the German trenches. And um, uh, his, his last words, as he stood up high above the, um, uh, above the parapet, was, they couldn't hit an elephant from this dis... <laughs> last words can be significant and so um, uh, we should be uh, filled with expectation as we read the beginning of John chapter 17. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come, he says. He's been saying that since John 12, 23 actually. Those uh, Greeks arrived, they wanted to talk to him. Somehow that seemed to be a trigger in his mind that now this was the moment when he must go towards his death on the cross. And he described it as, my hour has come. And uh, in John 13, um, just the next chapter, verse 1, John reminds us that this is what was in Jesus' mind. He said Jesus knew that the hour had come. So this repetition of the hour has come, the third repetition, is very significant. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, he says. Again, that is something that he has been talking about since the, the trigger that set off this, these last, uh, this last week of his life. John 12, 23 says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in tw- verse 28 of John 12, um, uh, Jesus says, Glorify your name to God. God says back, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The whole focus of Jesus' life seems to be that he would be glorified and indeed that God would be glorified through him. And here it comes again. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Verse 2 is no less portentous. You granted him authority over all people, he, he says. Back in chapter 13, verse, uh, verse 3, remember 
uh, as they were in an upper room together. And Jesus was about to wash his disciples' feet. John tells us that Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And we learned in, in, in John 13 that actually the authority of Jesus is exercised supremely in him taking the role of a servant, a humble servant serving. And now he reminds us again, you granted him authority over all people. And he will, he will use that authority to serve. To serve in a particular way. You granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now that one goes back right to the beginning of the Gospel. Um, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, said John in John 3.16. And then the theme of eternal life has just bubbled along in John's Gospel. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well do you remember that? Um, uh, they started discussing drinking water and Jesus started speaking of a, a spring of water that will well up to eternal life. Or John chapter 5, where Jesus was trying to explain who he is. He said that he himself has, has life in himself and he gives life to anyone that he chooses. Or John chapter 6, remember that he feeds the 5,000 and uh, people come and want to make him... Uh, uh, leader, and he starts to talk of himself as the bread of life. And uh, he speaks in such a way that the disciples, um, um, uh, many, many disciples leave Jesus. Jesus turns to Peter and he says, will you leave me too? And Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, Jesus. We don't know everything and we're as confused as the rest person and the next person, but we see you have the words of eternal life. Or in John chapter 10, at the end of John 10, just before Jesus then raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, I give them, his people, eternal life. So when we got to John chapter 12, um, uh, where Jesus had said, the hour has come, glorify your name. It's not surprising that he starts talking about life. Anyone who loves their life, he says there, will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So we couldn't miss it. Eternal life has been a, a central thrust of what Jesus has been talking about and what John has been talking about in this Gospel. And now here it is. All the authority that God that he has over all people is to be used to confer eternal life. We are, we are there. We are in the last speech of Jesus, the last words of Jesus. He's, he's summarised, in a sense, where, where, where we're at and what's about to happen. And now he prays. He prays publicly. Yeah? He prays knowing that people would overhear him, intentionally wanting to speak to God about the most important things. 
that now um, uh, remain to be said as he faces death. First thing, um, notice he says, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Somehow eternal life comes through knowing God and knowing Jesus. That's, that, um, that's the, the, the sort of introductory statement that he makes. And then, for the rest of the chapter, that we won't be able to look at in, in a lot of detail, unfortunately, we're going at some speed now through John's Gospel, but for the rest of the chapter, I want to suggest to you, he makes one key assertion and two key requests as he prays to God. One key assertion that is vitally important for his disciples to remember as his last words, and two key requests that it's vitally important his disciples remember as his last words. And the key assertion is found in verses 6 to 8. There, he says, people know God, and therefore, of course, enjoy eternal life. People know God through his word. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything uh, you have given me comes from you. I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. Uh, Four things he says about um, uh, his word or God's words. The first first thing he says is that actually the process of them coming to know Jesus was also a process of them obeying his word. Did you see that? Um, I've revealed you, he says to them, verse 6, and they have obeyed your word. In other words, you cannot separate obedience to Jesus' words from knowing Jesus and knowing God. They are not separable. You cannot know God outside of a commitment to follow what God says. And you cannot follow what God says, actually, without actually, in the process, coming to know God. The two are inseparable. I revealed you, they obeyed your words. Second, uh, se- second way he describes it is they accepted that Jesus' words came from God. That was in verse um, uh, uh, 8. I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. To, 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 to take them on board. It's a different way of saying something very, 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 very similar. Um, and he says on the back of that they knew with certainty that I came from you. There was a certitude that entered their hearts. And then he describes it in another way. They believed that you sent me. They obeyed the word of God. They accepted the word of God. They come to know the truth about God with certainty. They believed the word of God. 
All of those things are different ways of describing the same process. They all happen together. How can we have that certainty? How, how, how can we come to believe in the way that Jesus describes? Is, is it just a matter of, of, of rationally working through and anyone with half a brain would definitely come to believe all the things that Jesus says? Well, it's not quite like that. No, the, 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 the truth that Jesus proclaims is, is rational, but the, the claims that he is making go so far beyond our ability to sort of test them as a scientist tests things, that you can't say, oh, I will only believe it if I can, I can thoroughly test it in my laboratory. It just doesn't work. How could it, when you're talking about truths, that truths about an infinite God who is infinitely above this world? Some people dismiss that out of hand because they can't test it, but they have no rational reason to do so. The rest of us then have to, have to accept that though Christian truth is rational, it is not provable in quite the way that scientists want to prove it. Well, if you can't prove it then, is it just a leap in the dark? Is it just a, just, just a, a, a flip of the coin decision? I'll, I'll decide to follow Jesus or I won't decide to follow him. No, no, it's not that. No, there is a certainty that Jesus is talking about here. There is a, an inner confidence that comes actually as a believer sets out to follow the word of Jesus. Quite commonly, when if, if I'm talking to someone who's not yet a Christian and they say, well, what should I do? I say, well, look, this is what, this is what you should do. Read, read a gospel and read it looking for a response that Jesus calls you to make. And when you see one, then pray. Pray like this, if you like. God, I don't know whether you're there, but if you are, please answer this prayer. And ask God to help you to obey what you have read in the Bible that day. And then set out that day to see if you get an opportunity to do it. And then do the same the next day, and the next day, and the next day. It is only actually as someone comes humbly and says, no, if it's true, I will obey it that they find actually that as they start obeying, they find that it's true. It's not a, not a leap of blind faith. Um, I think it was Mark Twain in Huckleberry Finn said, faith is believing what you know ain't true. It's not that. But it is something you just simply can't test in uh, the scientific laboratory. It is something that you become certain of as you set out to obey it. Such important last words. How are we going to know Jesus? Now he's going. How are we going to know God um, when God 
when God is, is not visible and the person who revealed God is gone. How are we going to know that? We're going to know that through the word of God and through humbly committing ourselves to obedience. That is how people have come to know God and know Jesus for the last 2,000 years. That is how people come through knowing Jesus to find eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying. That's his assertion. You'll find me now through my word. You'll know me now through my word. Then there are two requests he makes of God. Two important requests, but we haven't got time to look at them in in detail. But the first one is found in verses 9 to 19. He requests protection for his disciples. Verses 9 to 11, he he rehearses again, if you glance down at the the fact that he's he's going, as he's said again and again and again. But then he says, Holy Father, second half of verse 11, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be as one as we, we are one. And then um, he elaborates on that in verse 14. I have given them your word, he says, well we know about that, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. That, that Jesus' disciples need protecting because actually to start following his word is to begin to be hated by the world. That's what, he, that's what he knows. And so he prays to God for their protection. Notice, he doesn't say, take them out of this world. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not. He says, we're not of the world, but we have to stay in the world, just as Jesus did. We are, there is no calling to Christians to sort of um, shut themselves away as hermits, to, to, to uh, bolt the door of churches and uh, worship in secret. That is always a second best. Sometimes has to happen in situations of extreme persecution. But the ideal is that Christians should live openly, even vulnerably, in the world. And Jesus prays that as we do that, we would be protected. Of course, his prayer was answered. The next uh, prayer that he uh, he makes as well, um, it is um, it is answered by God. The rest of the Bible makes it very plain that God's people are protected. Not protected from all harm. No, just as Jesus had to go to the cross, sometimes Christians even lose their lives. Christians will be slandered. Christians may find themselves losing their jobs and all the other things that we're increasingly seeing in this country. But there is not a protection against all harm. There is a protection against the key harm. Did you notice that? Again, protect them from the evil one. 
the devil, Satan, who loves to disrupt and derail Christian lives. That's what Jesus is praying for. That we would stay faithful to him. And God promises us that there is nothing that can separate us now from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Even if those things damage us, Satan has no hold on us. Jesus prays for protection. And then in verses 20 to 23, Jesus prays for unity. My prayer is not for them alone, he says, because strictly speaking, his prayer up to that point has been for his immediate disciples, uh, the disciples that uh, walked with him on the earth, though by extension it applies to us. But now he consciously um, uh, widens his horizon beyond his immediate disciples to all those who will follow him in the future. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Some of the things Jesus says are extraordinarily difficult to get a handle on and to, to, uh, to understand, because um, in particular, as, as he's recorded in John's Gospel, um, ideas sort of get rolled around in the sentences and you come back to the same idea and you look at it from slightly different perspectives. And so it can be quite difficult to see exactly what Jesus is saying. But let me point out a few things that Jesus is saying about this uh, as he prays for unity for all disciples. The first thing that's important to notice is he's talking actually about a unity between subsequent followers and the first apostles. You see that? Um, My prayer is not for them, the first apostles alone. I pray also for all those who will believe in me, that all of them may be one. So, So that all of them, first apostles and subsequent followers, may be one. True Christian unity, the unity that Jesus is, 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 uh, is praying for here, is a unity that, that between the first, his first disciples and all the following disciples. That immediately, of course, alerts us to the fact that those who abandon the teaching of Jesus and, and yet want to still um, uh, say that they are Christians um, cannot claim that they should be united with other believers who are following the teachings of the first apostles and of, of Jesus himself. That's not, Jesus is not praying that there would be that kind of unity. Anyone who happens to want to take the name of Christian on, them, uh, on themselves should be united. No, all followers of Jesus subsequently are to be united in their being followers of the first teachings of Jesus and the Apostles. That's why we uh, emphasise teaching the Bible. Because that is what gives us true unity. Another thing to, to, uh, uh, to point out as well is that um, there is no indication that Jesus is, is praying for some sort of global organisational structure which will create unity. Actually, from the very earliest of days, if you read the uh, 
uh, read the book of Acts, and certainly in the first couple of centuries of the, of the Christian church, that, it became clear that that was an impossible project. Human beings are too sinful to be able to try to, to unite people in some global organisational way. It is much more of, a, of, a, of, a, of an organic thing. It is a, it is a connection that um, people, believers, find between themselves as they put the Bible central in their lives and as they live it out. I, I've travelled a reasonable amount around the world and it is one of the most extraordinarily rich and wonderful things that you can go to almost any culture in the world and walk into a church that teaches the Bible and it may be culturally so foreign and yet there's a connection there, a real connection. You know, um, I remember experiencing it first when I was in, in, in Nepal. In Nepal, men sit one side, where women sit the other. You all take your shoes off um, at, at the door, and um, no one brings their shoes in. Um, uh, women changed their babies' nappies in the aisle during the, during the service, um, which was quite an experience, especially for a young single man. Um, uh, the smell was interesting. Um, uh, all sorts of things, uh, peculiar things happened. Um, they'd say, well, we're going to have a time of prayer now, and I'd wait for someone to lead us. And no, you were all supposed to pray on your own, uh, individually. And again and again and again, there were culture differences, and yet you saw that these people loved Jesus. And they loved me, and there was a connection there that came. And since that time, I've gone... Uh, to, to country after country and you feel that and you know that it is not bound by denominations it's not bound by structures it's not um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's something organic a connection that there is between the people of God we may disagree about certainly how to run church services and also some minor things but we are united around the central truths about Jesus, about what it means to follow him, about why he died on the cross, and how we find eternal life through knowing Jesus, through faith in Jesus. That is the unity that God has given in, in this world. It is a false hope to think, much as I would love to think it was possible, it's a false hope to think that somehow some great big, uh, organisational structure can produce that. But it is there and it is very real. Notice though something extremely um, I'm almost tempted to say weird about this unity. It certainly stretches, um, stretches our minds. Um, I pray for them, he says, um, verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So, so Jesus has repeatedly been saying through his gospel, that, uh, through, through John's gospel, that there is an intimate connection between himself and the Father. So, so intimate and so strong that on one occasion Philip says, show us the Father, and Jesus' reply is, well, haven't you seen me, Philip? 
Yeah, God is in Jesus, and Jesus is in God, and that they're, they're, they're the only way that Christians have found to describe that is by um, uh, speaking of Trinity, because the Holy Spirit is there as well as a third element. Somehow you haven't, you don't completely know God until you know God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They they function together as an an intermingling and yet distinct three-person Godhead. But here's the surprise. Believers enter into that. Yeah? Did you see that? You are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Somehow... To be a Christian, to know God, to have eternal life, to have obeyed and accepted the word of God and believed and trusted it, is to be absorbed into the Godhead so that there is now that union has been extended in some way to all human beings. The Apostle Paul uses language to, uh, to capture that. He describes Christians as being in Christ. That's not by accident. It's not just a little idiom that he's invented. It's a profound truth that he believes. Somehow, there is a union between believers and the three-person Godhead, which is profound and real. He talks about it again in verses 23, 2 and 23. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. So, so the unity that Christians enjoy is a unity which is given by Jesus because he, has, he, he is in them, or they are in him. And they are bound together. That means that any individual, woe betide any individual who violates that unity, that relationship that God has given to his true believers because they are violating their relationship with God. This is profound and this is important. It is a profound reality. Jesus prays for unity. A unity which is based on the unity of God the Father and God the Son. And that unity, he said, I don't know whether you've noticed, he said it, says it twice, that unity will result in fruit. He said it in verse 21. Um, we, we will, they, they will be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then he says it again in verse 23. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The, the love that believers have, the unity that believers have with one another results in the world seeing Jesus. Three really important things Jesus prays about. Really vital things. Now that he's going, well it was the same even before he went, but now that he's going he wants to make it really clear. 
We know God and Jesus through his word. And when he goes, he prays that God will protect them in the world, vulnerably living in the world, as he did, but God will protect them from the evil one. And that God will will confer on them a true unity, a unity which is bound up with their very identity in Christ. And that through that they will be fruitful. What does that mean for us? Well, let me suggest a few things. It means we must read his word and read it with a view to obeying it. That is how we know God and that is how we have eternal life. It means we can live confidently. We are protected from the evil one. Not from all opposition, but from ultimate evil. We can go out and live confidently. Jesus has prayed it for us. He has given it to us. We can live vulnerably, not taken from the world, but living in the world. Speaking of Jesus, we do not need to be afraid. And we must live lives of love for other believers. Because um, though it is fundamentally an identity that he has conferred on us, we are in Christ. It must work itself out in real, visible love for all true believers. And then we can expect fruit.